Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. Alright, on with the show. Before I get to the episode, I want to mention that in March, I'm hitting three years since I started podcasting full-time. And I want to do a Q&A episode, so... I'll answer questions about Canadian history, about myself. Just email craig at canadaehx.com. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. For eight years, a Francophone woman in Quebec waited to find out if she was going to jail. She lived through a trial that sentenced her to multiple years of jail time, an appeal, and numerous delays by the provincial government. Yet, she continued to wait. Her crime? It wasn't murder, treason, or theft. It was simply organizing people to make a difference. But for the provincial government of Quebec, the crime was inexcusable. They called her a communist, a Russian agent, and words I won't repeat here. All she had done was spend her adult life helping workers gain more rights, safer work conditions, and better pay. The government saw this as sedition, and this woman was enemy number one. And despite the repeated arrests, trials, and harassment, she always put workers and unions first, even ahead of her own hopes and dreams for a family and a normal life. Almost a decade after she was arrested, she was nearing the end of her wait. Her name was Madeleine Perron, And she's one of the most respected union organizers of the Great White North. And today, I'm going to share you part of her story. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X. The story begins in Montreal on June 23, 1918, when Madeleine Perron was born to Marie and Rita Forrest and J.B. Perron. As a child, Madeline was educated in French at the Villa Marie Convent and English at the Trafalgar School for Girls. At the convent, she saw that the servant girls who worked and cleaned were treated as second-class citizens, receiving low pay and living in poor conditions. She said they got up at 5 a.m., served the girls after mass, and throughout the day scrubbed floors and stairs, yet they were kept away from everyone else by the nuns. She said, quote, We were not supposed to fraternize with them in any way. They were just non-persons in the convent. I simply could not accept that." In 1936, Madeline enrolled at McGill University to pursue a Bachelor of Sociology, and it was there she became interested in protesting and activism. Little did she know, this would define her life. At the school, she took part in her first collective action through Canadian Students' Assembly campaigns to seek financial aid for students dealing with poverty. She also joined Catholic associations and was part of the student movement in Quebec. 
At McGill, she also met a student from British Columbia named Val, who became her husband in 1941. And if you think it was meant to last, it wasn't. They divorced a decade later. In a yearbook photo of Madeline of an unknown year, the caption said, Give up what perished long ago, and let us love the living. She would put that caption into practice throughout her entire life. After her graduation in 1940, Madeline began working as a secretary of the Montreal Trades and Labour Council Organizing Committee. At the time, union activity was dominated by men. In 1942, she started working as the key union organizer with Kent Rowley for the United Textile Workers of America in Quebec. She didn't know it at the time, but she and Kent would change labor rights throughout Quebec. But it would not be an easy journey. With them at the helm, the union began to grow and by 1946, 6,000 textile workers were led by Kent and Madeline. Together, they began a strike against Dominion Textile in Valleyfield and Montreal on behalf of the International Ladies' Garment Workers' Union. The goal was to improve the working conditions for the women employed by the company. Other unions, dominated by men in Quebec, were not interested in women forming a union and believed their strike was not worth the trouble. Madeline said years later, quote, The overwhelming majority of striking workers were women and francophone women. Their interests were being betrayed by the union leadership. End quote. While the company settled the strike in Montreal, the Valley Field plant strike continued. The company had a powerful ally in the Quebec government who saw unions as the first step towards communism, and nothing was worse than communism for the government. At the time, Quebec was led by Maurice Duplessis. As premier, he was extremely anti union and again saw all union activity as communist plots. And to say that Duplessis hated communism would be an understatement. He would say, quote, Communism must be considered the top public enemy, despised and to be despised. His government enacted the Act to Protect the Province Against Communistic Propaganda, which gave the Attorney General the right to prosecute people who spread communism on private or public property. It also banned all communist publications. Also known as the Padlock Law because it allowed the government to lock up businesses and homes with padlocks if communism was suspected on the premises. Anyone who violated the law could spend up to a year in prison. The law was struck down by the Supreme Court of Canada almost 10 years later in 1957. But going back, Duplessis immediately declared that the Valley Field strike was illegal. But that didn't stop the strikers. On August 13th, Madeline was arrested and charged with seditious conspiracy and public charges that she was a communist. Sentenced to 30 days in jail, she was freed when the Court of Appeals reversed the verdict. The North Bay Nuggets said, quote, She speaks both French and English with equal ease and often carries on a conversation in both languages at the same time. Quiet and businesslike when not addressing a union meeting, she is a ball of fire on the speaking platform, standing about 5 foot 3, Miss Perrault is worshipped by the Union rank and file, both men and women alike. End quote. The arrest didn't dampen her efforts as she continued to fight for what she believed in. Eventually, the strikers won, and they formed a union to campaign for better working conditions. For Madeline, this was the first strike of many, and the first victory as well. On April 10, 1947, 700 wool workers aligned with the United Textile Workers of America 
waged a strike that would rage for weeks. The workers were looking for a 15 cent an hour wage increase, union shop provisions, and six legal holidays a year. Madeline said years later in 1988 that, for the first three weeks of the strike, picketing was peaceful. Everyone was out. Around this time, Duplessis began to make public statements about the strike and communism, which led to public outcry and repeated confrontations between the strikers and police. This resulted in multiple arrests. Between May 2nd and May 7th, 1947, Madeline was arrested three times in connection with the strike. On May 7th, she was charged with influencing employees to go on strike and was eventually released on $2,000 bail. Kent was arrested and released as well. Antonio Barrett, the Provincial Minister of Labour, stated, We had Madeleine Perron arrested because she was the cause of trouble. With bandits like herself, she organized trouble. Madeleine Perron wants to organize strikes to advance her communist ideals. Gilbert de Years, president of Years Limited, the company the workers were striking against, said, The truth is that Rowley and Miss Perron, through this latest move, are seeking personal vengeance against me. Rowley and Miss Perron will soon learn that we cannot be blackmailed or scared. While out on bail, the arrest did not stop for Madeline. On May 21st, she surrendered to police because she had been discussing strike strategy with the union leaders when she heard there was another warrant for her arrest. Once again, she was jailed pending arraignment on charges of seditious conspiracy and intimidation. This time, she was refused bail. On June 27th, Judge Aim Chase sent Madeline and Kent to trial. He stated that her actions were violent and seditious, stating, quote, These speeches are clearly a seed of discord and hate prejudicial to good public order and to the security of the state, end quote. Madeline was released on $11,000 bail, much of it raised by union members. And while she was out, she was not going to stay silent. She continued to criticize companies in Quebec while also speaking at union events to raise support for the Canadian Congress of Labour. She was also appointed as the acting Canadian director of the United Textile Workers of America. She said, Two months ago, I felt certain I would go to jail this fall. Now I feel I stand a chance of retaining my freedom. On November 26, 1947, her trial began with Justice Philemon Cassanou presiding. He made no secret of where his loyalties lied. He had been the president of the Conservative Party at the turn of the century. That party morphed into Union Nationale with Duplessis, who was a close friend and who was now leading the province. Cousineau was not a fan of unions, equating picketing with an act of war. And by this point, the workers Madeleine had organized and represented had lost their strike. This was because Premier Duplessis had sent in 250 armed provincial police to break the strike, and many union leaders were arrested. However, during her trial, it was revealed that the police who broke the strike were paid an extra $40 per week, about $551, and given all the liquor they wanted as a reward. The company also gave each officer two of the best blankets sold by the company when they broke the strike. Through the trial, Duplessis called the courthouse, giving the Crown Prosecutor instructions on how to proceed against Madeline. And the trial raged through the winter until February 7th, when a jury deliberated for only 45 minutes and found Madeline and Kent guilty of seditious conspiracy. Kent was given a six-month prison term while Madeline was sentenced to two years in prison. Madeline chose to appeal her sentence and was released on $3,000 bail. One reason for the appeal was that the judge made unfavorable comments about unions in his charge to the jury, 
while also allowing prosecution witnesses to read their evidence from a prepared document, but refusing the same right to defense witnesses. Things then moved slowly as the appeal process began. Finally, on May 31, 1949, two years after she was first arrested, Madeline had her sentence and conviction set aside and a new trial was ordered. But if things were slow before, now they were glacial. Madeline said that every autumn she went to the court and each time the Attorney General stated that it was not in the public interest to proceed with the new trial at this time. She said, It was an injustice, but part of my life, part of history, a McCarthy-like attack on people standing up for their rights. Things continued to drag on until 1955 when she was finally acquitted. For Madeline, the trial hanging over her for years came at a great cost. She had wanted children, but she did not want to have to ask Duplessis for compassion should she have to go to jail while pregnant or as a mother. So, she chose not to have kids. And by the time she was acquitted, she was 37 and felt that it was too late. She said, I think it was worth it. I've been called a witch, a mole, a lesbian, everything you could think of. The entire affair became the longest trial in Quebec's history to that point. And despite the close call of spending a few years in jail and the constant harassment by the government, Madeline did not give up her union activities. Throughout those eight years, she continued to help unions gain recognition in Quebec. In November of 1949, she organized 75 workers of the Heald Brothers Limited into a union so they could push for higher wages and better working conditions. She told them, quote, We cannot promise you anything definite. It all takes time. But we do promise you your wages will be increased. The union is interested in obtaining sickness, accident, and hospitalization insurance paid completely by the company, and we're going to demand that there be no distinction between men and women workers. End quote. Once again in September 1950, Madeline was arrested, this time on charges of causing a disturbance at the Dominion Textile Company's plant in Hochelega. She pled innocent and was released on $500 bail. Her trial was set for October, and once again she was acquitted of all charges. In 1952, she founded the Canadian Textile Council with Kent Rowley, him as president, and she served as the secretary-treasurer. One year later, Madeline and Kent became not only work partners, but life partners when they married. By this point, she had gained the respect of many male workers in trades such as forestry and mining, and her voice carried a great deal of weight. At this time, she also wanted to make Canadian unions independent from American interests. Until then, most Canadian unions had US-based headquarters, but Madeline and Kent refused to sign a contract with their headquarters, causing a split with the American unions. This began the push for the couple to create an independent labour movement, and the goal would take them over a decade to achieve. Meanwhile, Madeline continued to be harassed for her union activities. On March 10, 1954, she was fined $25 after she pled guilty to distributing circulars without a permit. Typically, the fine for the offense was $10, but the judge raised the fine since she was a union organizer who was also advising others to distribute the circulars. That same year, Madeline attempted to increase her political power to help unions by running for a seat on the City Council of Montreal. Several union workers had requested that she run, but, despite her name recognition, she finished with 658 votes, well back of the winner who had 6,000. In 1956, Madeline led a strike for hardening carpets that consisted of 700 employees. 
Backed by the provincial government, Harding Carpets ran a full-page ad in the newspaper that read, quote, In this strike, communism is not a red herring, but an ever-present danger, end quote. It then attacked Madeline and Kent directly, stating, Kent Rowley is a communist, as his associate, Madeline Perrault. Due to her actions, which were seen as contrary to the role of women in the province, Madeline was constantly harassed by the press, the government, and the church. She was labeled a whore, and rumors spread that she was a Russian and was not even born in Quebec but smuggled ashore on a submarine. It reached the point that she had to produce a birth certificate to counter the rumors. Despite this, she continued to campaign for unions, especially when it came to female workers who were paid far less than men in the same industry. She said, I believe young women of all origins and circumstances will, in their own way, continue their struggle against long-standing injustices, building coalitions with their sisters around the world and with men who care. They will overcome. In 1956, Madeline left Canada briefly to visit China for six weeks. The trip, which would be recounted in the book Two Innocents in Red China, included psychiatrist Denis Lezieux, puppeteer Micheline Legendre, and a man by the name of Pierre Trudeau, who was 12 years away from becoming the Prime Minister of Canada. Eventually, Madeleine and Kent's efforts to form an independent union and pressure from Maurice Duplessis caused the United Textile Workers Association to push the couple out of leadership. After this, Kent moved to Ontario to build a presence, while Madeleine remained in Quebec. And they would live apart for the next decade as they put their union work ahead of their relationship. Madeleine said this was not for a lack of love, but because they continually answered a higher calling for themselves. She said, Every time we thought of starting a family, something more pressing came up. Another strike, another cause, another negotiating session. Things slowly began to change with the death of Duplessis in 1959. Then came the beginning of the quiet revolution of the 1960s, that saw the conservative hold on the province by the Catholic Church weaken. Lastly, the provincial government under Premier Jean Lesage liberalized many institutions in the province. And throughout the next several years, Kent and Madeline toured throughout Canada speaking to workers and helping them form unions or lend their name and recognition to strikers elsewhere in Canada. The couple reunited in Ontario and began to live together again in 1968. It was at this time that Madeline and Kent founded the Council of Canadian Unions. And this closed the chapter on the 15-year struggle to build the independent Canadian unions. And Kent died in 1978, so Madeline moved back to Quebec. In 1979, she led a bitter strike against Puretex to protest surveillance of workers by closed-circuit television. The company had cameras set up to watch employees, especially the female employees. The door to the women's bathroom even had a camera focused on it, while the men's bathroom did not. Can you describe the layout of this plant and the position of the cameras? Are they noticeable when you're working there all day? Oh, they are noticeable from the moment you arrive at the plant gates. There is one camera outside. Altogether, there are nine cameras, four of which are on the main production floor where there are about 200 workers. And those cameras are those which affect our people most because they are scrutinizing the work and activities of our people constantly on production work at sewing machines, cutting tables, pressing, and even when the women go into the washroom and come out of it. They have what, a, a camera at the door? A camera 
beamed on the door of the women's washroom, no camera beamed on the door of the men's washroom. In 1983, Madeline retired from union work, but she did not leave her activism behind. Instead, she began to focus on women's rights and became a founding member of the National Action Committee on the Status of Women. In her new role, she began to focus on the issues that faced immigrant and indigenous women in Canada. In an interview with the Montreal Gazette for International Women's Day in 1983, she said, I think it is important that at least once a year women look back over the battles that have been fought and remember the struggles In that way, International Women's Day is very important. In 1995, she participated in the World March of Women, and five years later, the End Poverty and Violence Against Women March. In 2001, she marched against the North American Free Trade Agreement at the Quebec Summit, and spoke out publicly many times against the invasion of Iraq by the United States. And typically, she had little good to say about most politicians. She said former Quebec Premier Lucien Bouchard was not grounded in ideas while she called former Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau arrogant. But not all politicians gained her ire, though. Of Adelaide Goubon, the man who gave women the right to vote in provincial elections in 1940, she said he was a good premier within the limitations of his time. Throughout her life, Madeleine made a point of not aligning herself with any political party, but instead chose parties based on who she felt was best for Quebec at the time. She said, I don't think any party would want me. I am very argumentative. Then, after decades of fighting, Madeline passed away on March 12, 2012 at the age of 94. Rick Sullitan, columnist for the Globe and Mail, stated that she was one of the finest labour organisers in Canadian history, while former Prime Minister Jean Chrétien said that she was his hero. Writer Judy Ribic wrote upon the death of Madeline, She was fierce, courageous, and determined. Somehow, I don't think we will see the likes of her again. So that was the life of Madeleine Perron. But you might be wondering, what happened to the Council of Canadian Unions Madeleine Kent formed way back in the 1960s? In July 1973, the organization changed its name to the Confederation of Canadian Unions, and the group quickly emerged as a leader for workers' rights and social justice for all Canadians. It became the first labour federation in Canada to call for equal pay for work for equal value. In 1978, it had 26,000 members across 13 unions in Canada. And while the Confederation of Canadian Unions only accounts for a small percentage of organised labour in Canada, it appeals for independence and new members have helped influence the creation of autonomy guidelines within many international unions. The organisation is now applying for membership with the International Trade Union Confederation, the world's largest trade union federation, with 207 million members worldwide. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at Madeleine Perron. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, Citizen of the World, Confederation of Canadian Unions, Wikipedia, CBC, Toronto Star, Globe and Mail, Concordia University, The Metropolitan, National Post, Montreal Gazette, Ottawa Journal, Montreal Star, North Bay Nugget, and The Ottawa Journal. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production and design by Rosalind Kufor. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. 
We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.